So Paul's writing them this letter, most likely from a place called Macedonia. Can I, uh, am I good? All right, we're good. All right, from a place called uh, Macedonia. Now, um, after, after Paul finished writing the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, uh, he leaves for a place called Ephesus. Uh, a while ago, maybe two years ago, two, maybe three, we studied the book of Ephesians, uh, the letter to that church. Um, he, stays, he stays in Ephesus somewhere from about six months to a year. Something terrible happens. I know some riots happen. We, we read about that in the book of Acts. <clears throat> and then he leaves. Um, something bad happened in this journey. And, and after he leaves, he goes straight to Macedonia and writes these guys a letter. This is written about a year after the previous letter that we just finished studying. So... Um, about 55 A.D., um, not long after, after uh, the, the ascension of Jesus, uh, you know, 15, 15 years. Um, so, um, we call this letter 2 Corinthians. Now, you, you may have heard me say this a couple of times. You know, I said the first letter we call 1 Corinthians, and why do I keep saying we call them First and Second Corinthians? Well, the truth is the scholars disagree over how many letters there are to the Corinthians, um, uh, and whether or not 2 Corinthians is one letter or two letters. So um, a lot of people think that there were four letters. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 mentions uh, uh, an earlier letter of Paul's, so that would make 1 Corinthians actually 2 Corinthians. And um, he calls it, he, there's another letter he calls the severe letter, which we think might be part of 2 Corinthians. So what we might be actually reading here and studying is either 3rd or 4th Corinthians. All right? Mind blown. All right? Okay. So, uh, all of this to say, um, it really doesn't matter. Paul, Paul has some things that he wants to say here. And uh, part of understanding the inerrancy of scriptures, the, the theology behind that, the doctrine of inerrancy of scriptures, is, is to know that, that we, we know about God exactly what we are supposed to know about God. Um, he doesn't, God doesn't seem to have left us any more or less information than we need. Uh, we seem to know exactly what we need. The truth of God is here. We're not missing anything. And what we are missing is not necessary. And what we do have is necessary for us to hear. So um, let's set the plot for this book uh, that will sort of um, set the trajectory for the rest of this study. If you read straight from verse 3 until about verse 7, there's one thing you're going to notice above all other things in this passage is that he keeps saying the word comfort. He actually... Um, he says it nine times in four sentences. Uh, it's, it's, it's redundant. He does it constantly. Um, and it's, it's quite obvious that the reason he is writing this letter is because he wants them to feel comfort for something, from something, um, comfort about something. Um, also, right before he says the word God of comfort, he says, Father of mercies. Look at verse 3. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That word mercy is there. Um, if, you, if you open up and study it, it really means compassion. Um, some of your translations might actually say compassion if you're not using an ESV, uh, which means you haven't learned by now. Um, it's, it's a word that refers to how to treat someone who is in sorrow. So it's, he's saying that God is a God who, who helps people in sorrows. He's a father of mercies and, and comfort, 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 comfort nine times. So there's something going on that people need comfort. Paul knows this, and he's bringing it to them. Um, from the looks of things, we can see quite clearly that there's a lot of pain being suffered. Um, so what is going on uh, historically? What happened? Uh, why are people sad? Uh, why do they need comfort? Well, um, if you look down at verse 8 through 10, you see something interesting. Um, it says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experience. He talks about something, how, how they experienced some affliction. Um, 
uh, in verse 8, he says this. And then, and then if you keep reading, he says things like, uh, we were utterly burdened, um, we despaired of life. That word that he uses for despaired of life, um, exapareo, it means to be utterly at loss, to be utterly destitute um, of measures or resources, uh, to renounce all hope and in despair. Basically, they were convinced that they were going to die. They, they literally were sitting there saying, well, I'm about to die. They had accepted it. They saw absolutely no hope, and they figured God had actually given them the sentence of death in this ministry. So um, what was it that happened? Honestly, we have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. Um, he doesn't tell us. Um, it's, it's th- what, what happens here is, I mean, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he seems happy, he seems joyful, he's making plans. A year later, maybe less, maybe six months later, um, he, he writes this letter, and it's the equivalent of, of, of t- having a conversation with somebody, and they're all happy, and they, they walk away, and they walk into a building, and then a little while later, they come out of the building, and they're all beat up, but they're still happy, and you have no idea what happened, and they won't tell you. So that's where we are. That's Paul. Um, we have no idea what happened, but something happened. Something big, huge happened. Um, and verse 10 says that God saved them from it. Um, so it, it's interesting because one of the most amazing things to me about Paul is, is we don't even know that he told them what had happened. Um, it, it, Paul, uh, the amazing thing about him is he, he, he seems very, in more, very much more interested in um, the meaning behind things, events, sufferings, than he, than he is about the historical aspect of exactly what happened. He doesn't even talk about what happened. He says, God did something, and here's what it meant. He, he goes on and on about what it meant, and this is a bigger deal to him than the actual event that happened. Um, and look at what he says at the second half of verse 9. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, um, so in the first message of this letter, Paul starts off, um, blessed be the God of all comfort. Um, so the first thing he wants to do is, is do, first thing he wants to do, yeah, hooked on Phoenix. Um, he, first thing he does is he takes the attention off of himself, who has suffered something, and they seem to know about it, and he's saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Look at God. He's a God of comfort. He's a God who helped me through this. Um, uh, in verse 4, he actually uses one of my very, very favorite Pauline words, um, the word paraclesis, the, the word we, that we translate as afflictions. He says this, who comforts us, he's talking about God, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The word he uses here is paraclesis. I bring this word up as much as I can because I absolutely love it, and Paul seems to use it all over the place. Um, uh, all right, where are we? Okay, paraclesis, para means beside. Clesis, to aid or help to revive. Um, literally, this word can, can, can mean God sits next to you. He is sitting with you in your sorrows and your suffering with his arm around you and, and, and he's speaking words that change your mood. He, you, he gives you hope, direction, insights, and he's altering the way that you see the very next moment. So God is here with you. And he says, it's not just us. It, it's so that we also may be able to comfort others, uh, people who are in sorrow, uh, to comfort them, to sit beside them, put your arm around them, and speak words that give them hope. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. It will get better. The, the next moment can be, can be better than this. Let's look at this from a better angle. Let's talk about the love of God and what this could possibly mean. Um, and the comfort that God gives us and the comfort that we give others. It's supposed to pass through us to others. So it, it's an incredibly beautiful word that he uses here. Paraclesis. Remember that. Say paraclesis. Thank you. All right, so you got it. All right, so, and, and this, is the way, this is different from consoling. This is not, I know you kind of think you're sitting next to somebody tapping on the back saying, they're there. They're there. They're there. Um, this is not 
That's not what that is. This is not consoling. Consoling, um, it sort of brings someone from despair to, to general unhappiness. Um, it's, not, it's not consoling. Um, this goes and meets them where they are, administers to them until they're strong enough to see hope, new life, new possibilities, new ways forward. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. The, 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 the amazing thing about Christianity. Um, it's a good word. It's a really, really great word. Um, and Paul says, this is what God does for us, and this is what God did for me, and this is what we should be doing for each other. Um, the reason God does it for us is so we can do it to other people. Uh, it's, it's that thing, again, I, I referenced Sam twice now, the thing Sam talked about a few weeks ago, that, that it doesn't end with us. The things God gives us, the gifts he gives us, we pass forward on to others. Um, so Paul says, this is what we do for other people. Um, and how does that work? How does, um, how does all this play out in community? Let's look again at verse 4 through 7, and let's read this one more time. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. See the word comfort over and over? All right. By God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know... That as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. All right, so the point of all this, the first thing I want to look at is, is, is the word affliction, right near the top, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Um, this is another great word. Um, affliction, it's, it's this Greek word, uh, it basically means physical pressure on someone, on, on a person, um, actual pressure, um, something weighing down upon them. Um, if, if you look at how the word is used in ancient, like, secular texts, uh, if you look at how it's used in general culture, you can kind of see a better use for, uh, a better grasp of how the word is used. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a court document, an ancient court document, that kind of, it uses this word, and if you translate it, uh, it, it kind of says, like, it says this, those who willfully refused to plea in court had heavy weights placed upon their breasts and were so pressed and crushed to death. The word flipsis, right there. That's it. Um, literally someone who, in court who refused to plea, um, they'd be laid down, strapped down, and, and, and weights would be piled up on top of them, and they would be told, you need to plea, you need to plea every single time. Uh, and if they wouldn't do it, they would just keep stacking them until they were crushed and died. This is the word Paul uses uh, for his own suffering and for our sufferings. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of a gruesome word. Actually, it, it, he gets very literal with it. If you look at verse 8 down here, if, if you can read this down here, it says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we, <coughs> that we despaired of life itself. Now, um, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> um, if you read other translations of, of, of this phrase right here, very modern uh, translations, if you read theologians who understand the Greek and sort of translated themselves in their own, and Wright Barclay, people like this, um, <coughs> you're going to see uh, a different way of sort of saying this phrase. It's, it gets very literal. It gets very culturally accurate. The way you transfer, uh, tr- I'm sorry, the way you translate verse 8 would sound like this. We were excessively weighed down till it was beyond bearing, and we thought we were going to die. So the actual way that this word would be used is the way that Paul is using it. Um, so many people struggle with the idea. Um, they, they struggle with this idea that, that God can comfort us in times like this. When, when things are just very, very, very bad, we, we feel crushed by the weight of what we are enduring. 
Um, and we struggle with the idea that God comforts us in our afflictions um, and that we're even able to comfort each other. Um, they struggle with this idea, and many of you today are, are in struggles and trials, and you hear people say things like, well, God will comfort you, and, and, you don't, and, 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 um, and God will give you joy, and I'm praying for God to comfort you, and, and you don't see how that works. Maybe you have more of a, a, a literal brain, and you're like, what's God going to do? How is God going to comfort me? What is he possibly going to do? What can I do to feel better? And, and, and what is there possibly action that God could take to make me feel better about what I am going through? Um, we, as children of 1,500 years of Greek thought and science and rational thinking and enlightenment, we don't tend to see how God, who, who created time and space and matter and then became a part of creation and suffered and died and, and resurrected, how a God can actually come and and, and practice what Paul is saying here, to sit next to us and to speak things to us, to give us hope. We don't see the connection and how this works. And so, uh, you know, how, how does that comfort work? Is, 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 is he making us feel good? Or will he really send something to make us feel better? Is he going to do that? Why didn't he just, if he can do that, why didn't he just stop it from happening in the beginning? <clears throat> and so I want to talk to you about something today called, uh, I'm going to call it this, nobody else called it this, the, le- the lens of Christianity. Um, how we are supposed to look at experiences of life. Um, and as I thought about this, I thought of the perfect illustration. Behold, a chicken in sunglasses. Give it a minute. Um, uh, we have a bad projector at the moment. The white's kind of burnt out, so you can't really read this. But this appears a picture of chicken sunglasses. Okay, and you're like, what are you doing? Where is this going? Just hang on. This is it. This is a chicken. You put those on the chicken. Now, what this does... Um, they're red, um, in a chicken coop, thousands and thousands of chicken. My, my, my uncle in Maine had one. You walk in there, and, and it smells awful, and it's super noisy. It's chickens everywhere. Uh, if you put these on the chicken, they were invented sometime in the 20s or 30s. Um, they kind of hang like this, and they kind of move back and forth, and every time he moves, they just, they stay right in front of his face, and it makes the chicken see everything in red. Um, it, it changes the way the chickens interact because typically if one of the chickens gets injured and they have a little bit of blood coming out of their side or their leg, whatever, um, the chickens see blood and they freak out. And th- that's why the, stop cannibalism. That's why that, okay, because the chickens attack each other and, uh, and, and they eat each other. So this has context. Um, <clears throat> so the chickens attack each other and, and they eat each other, um, which causes more blood to flow. And so what happens is you'll end up with a massive barn full of dead chickens. Um, so they found that if you put little, little chicken sunglasses on a chicken, they make him see red. He can't see the blood and he doesn't attack anything. So they make him look at everything differently in a, in a way um, that changes his entire pattern of behavior. Now, um, I, this to me, this is the only illustration I could come up with for, for, for something that, that, that um, changes the way that you see the world around you, and changes your actual behavior. Um, uh, this whole idea of the lens of Christianity, which I'm going to be explaining, it, it's, it's something which Paul had, which he wants his churches to have. Uh, it's not something which we can put on and take off. It's something which uh, we must learn to always look through. When we come to Christ, we gain the ability to look through things, look at the world through this lens of Christianity. Um, and basically all sufferings, all the troubles of the world, all good things and bad things, all of life's treasures and curses, um, 
can be looked at a little differently from the, from the point of view of a believer and follower of Jesus. Um, Paul, in his constant interactions with the Corinthians, he told them that they must know, um, at the very end of the book, he, he starts talking a lot about the resurrection and stuff, and he wants them to know and understand that these events actually happened. And so <clears throat> we talked about that, and, I, and I, I went into a lot of detail, historic evidence, showing you <clears throat> that Christianity is, 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 is not a religious system. It's, not a, it's, 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 it's based, as C.S. Lewis puts it in The Problem of Pain, um, it is, Christianity is, is an event in history that happened. And now, whatever we do, however we look at the world, we have to take into account what happened with the man, Jesus Christ, when he died, was buried, and rose again. This actually happened, and now we bring this into every situation that we deal with. <clears throat> so, um, Paul wants them to know, yes, these things actually happened, and I wanted you to know that these things, yes, actually did happen, but a lot of times we typically, um, we stop there. Um, that's usually as deep as it goes. We, we tell people Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you, if, if you trust in him, you, you, you believe in him, um, you receive salvation, and, and, uh, and, and there's hope in the resurrection, and we describe these things, and, and we describe the plan of God, and it's all based centered around historical events, but none of this actually changes the way that we look at the world. Um, and Paul wants it to, and Jesus wants it to. Um, people say, yes, Jesus lived and he died, um, and I believe there's a God, and, and Jesus was the incarnate God, and, and it's all about facts. It's not necessarily about what these facts mean. Um, if it's all about facts, and it's all about just simply believing events happened and will happen, that's an unfair assessment of what Christianity is. Christianity is more than that. It's taking these things and doing something with them. It matters just as much that these events actually happened as it does that they actually become the lens through which the whole world can be seen by you in proper focus. Um, uh, as N.T. Wright calls it, the grid on which all reality and experience can be plotted. You are on this side of Christianity, and you're looking out, and you see things differently than everyone else because of these events that happen. Um, so Paul doesn't just want us to understand that these things happen. He wants, them to hold them up, hold us, wants us to hold them up in front of our face and look out of them, look at the world through these events and see what they mean, see what reality we can pull from that. Um, and, they sh- and the fact is that they should still be happening every day. If we are claiming to be followers of Christ, then in every situation there, there should be somebody, the Christian, who is dying to themselves and offering grace to someone who does not deserve it um, and cannot earn your favor because of the things that they have done. In every situation, there should be that one person. If you are the Christian, you are that person that should be living the life of Jesus. All right? um, this is the lens through which, through which we look at the world and act in every situation, um, no matter what it is. If you are a follower of Christ, you are being Christ in that moment. His death, burial, and resurrection are having permanent impacts on your actions right now, no matter what is happening. Um, in your ac- interactions with others, in your marriages, in your relationships, big and small, Jesus suffered and was crucified, yet he loved and offered grace. All right? Now, at the base of every event of every day that we experience, we should be thinking, we should be asking one question of ourselves. What does the grace of God say about this situation, this person, or this event? What does the grace of God say about this? What does the fact that Jesus loved and offered forgiveness and grace despite of what we did to him? What does that say about this situation that I'm going through right now? So, so some basic questions. Uh, is someone mistreating you? Uh, just think about your life right now. A lot of you are like, yes, someone is definitely mistreating me right now. Um, do, do you find someone, is there someone in your life that you find completely unlovable? 
When you are around them, it drives you nuts. You don't want to talk to them. They, you find the way that they act, the way that they live, uh, completely immoral, wrong, and they, it, you just cannot love them for the way that they live. Uh, it, it maybe, is your, it, maybe it's a marital thing. Is your spouse not living up to their end of the deal? Um, do you feel alone in this, or do you feel whatever, whatever it is? Um, did, did a friend betray you? Did, did you get stabbed in the back? So um, these are things, I just, just, just a few of them, of the millions of things you could be going through right now that fall under the realm of suffering. Now, there's, there's other suffering that's huge that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, if we look at these things as human events to be responded to in human ways, the ways that humans respond, we will never achieve what Christianity has to offer us if we just simply respond like humans. Um, But if we look at these things through the lens of the gospel and respond according to the gospel, we have an opportunity to usher in the kingdom of God into these moments. All right? Um, We respond like God. We respond like Jesus. Um, So if if someone is mistreating you, remember, Jesus was mistreated and and, and and he loved and he offered forgiveness and blessings. Do you find someone completely unlovable? Jesus always loved the unlovable, <clears throat> not because they deserved it, but despite the fact that they didn't deserve it. Is your spouse maybe not living up to their end of the deal? This contract, you've both committed to something and it's not working. Israel betrayed the covenant that they made with God over and over and over. And we, his church, are a terrible bride. And he loves us and he blesses us. All right? Did someone that you thought was your friend completely betray you? How many times have you personally betrayed God only to remain in his love and care and to receive his blessings? This is the lens at which we should be looking at every situation that we are in. Okay, but what about suffering? What about real, down, hard suffering? Um, How do we bring this lens of Christianity into our times of suffering? How do we receive comfort from God through our suffering. First, uh, we need to take a look at why suffering is so incredibly detrimental in our lives. Uh, we all probably know somebody who has suffered terribly and walked away from God. I have several fam- family members that have. Um, they've suffered a death in the family and just have ended up walking away from the God that they followed since they were little children. Um, and why do some people walk away from God during suffering? Why is the idea of suffering one of the evidences that people use all the time to fight the ideas of a good and loving God? Uh, a lot of times whenever you get uh, Christian theologians or Christian philosophers on news channels, um, they grill them with questions like, either God is all-loving and, and all-powerful, um, or he's cruel. Because if he's all-loving and all-powerful, then, then he, he can fix your problems, he just chooses not to. Or maybe he, he can't. Or maybe he's cruel. And, and so people have this hard time justifying the intersection of, of, of God and suffering. Um, so why do we have such a hard time at this intersection of God and suffering? What is it about this that, that makes us struggle? One of the main reasons is because we want to know reasons. And we almost never know the reasons that we are suffering when we are suffering. We say, this is pointless. We say, first thing we say is, why, God? Why? And, and, and when we don't receive the answer, when we never find out why we are going through what we went through, we think, we think it's pointless, it's senseless, it makes absolutely no sense. It, a good God would not allow this to happen. Um, many people say that they would gladly suffer if, if they knew why, that, why they were suffering. If they knew some good would come of it, 
um, if there was some meaning behind it, if it would make them better or stronger or more useful in the kingdom, in the service of God, then they would gladly suffer. Um, and, and Paul actually says that he found the reason in, in, in verse 9. Uh, this was very fortunate of Paul that he actually found it. Maybe he, maybe he found it on an accident or maybe, maybe he, he just decided that this is the nature of God. But this is what he says uh, in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Paul, Paul came to the conclusion that, well, the reason I'm suffering right now is, is really because I was relying on my own strength. He was looking at everything completely different through this lens that, that most of us, very few of us, would be able to have. He says, well, maybe God just wants me to rely on him more. Maybe he wants me to feel completely hopeless so that, so that I can rely maybe on, on the hope of the resurrection, and then God led me out of this. So now I have, I have two things to be thankful for, the resurrection and the, the things I already received. Um, and this is a profound truth that, that really needs to be learned by all of us. Sometimes our suffering has distinct purposes of helping us cling closer to God. There's an ancient Arabian proverb that I, that I think is pretty, pretty brilliant. It goes like this. All sunshine makes a desert. If all you get is sun, 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 never a rainy day, you end up with a massive Saharan desert. Um, this is, I think, a major struggle in Christianity today. We, we live good lives, we're healthy, we're strong, and we're Christian. And we, we start to think that somehow we did something to earn all of this that we have. That somehow God sees favor on, favor on us, not because we're his children and because he loves us, but he sees favor on us because of the things that we have done and accomplished. Um, and we start to think that our religiosity and good morals had something to do with it somehow. And we forget that every good and perfect gift comes from God, from the Father of lights. Um, and, and this is also a lesson that the ancient Jews needed to learn. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, this verse always pops into my mind in any time of, of, of really good momentum. This is, uh, let's, so let's read this. Um, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. You were born into a rich country that you did not build, into a family that you did not choose, whose wealth and intellect you did not find or give to them, and oftentimes suffering comes into our lives and all we can do is say, there is no God. And, 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 and God tells them, you're about to go into a place that all of this is going to be given free as grace to you. You didn't do any of this and it's all gonna be yours, but the problem is when I take you there, I'm really afraid that you're gonna forget about me because you're gonna feel self-sufficient. This is what Paul understood. He, felt, he started to feel self-sufficient because things were going really, really, really good. And, and we all know what happens. They do forget God and they do fall away and they end up in exile from everything. Um, there's a lot of Christians today um, who are in danger of walking away from God at the slightest drop of a hat of a hint of suffering. Um, why do you think the poor, uh, you know, a few weeks ago I, I talked about how the poor people are much more susceptible to the gospel, uh, third world countries and things. Uh, <clears throat> why do you think the poor are more spiritual. And why do you think the mournful pray? Because they're in times of suffering and they realize that they need God. The only place to look is to God. 
But when there's nothing bad going on, when everything is great, you, you don't even bother looking at God. William Barclay puts it like this, for every one prayer that rises to God in days of prosperity, 10,000 rise in days of adversity. It's possible that maybe God just wanted to talk to you. The truth is, and this is a hard one, so listen to this one and think about this. There's a lot of Christians, both in scriptures and in history, who actually never learned why they suffered, who never saw any good come of it at all. Yet millions of, I mean, okay, so let, I mean, some examples. I mean, there's biblical examples and there's, there's church history examples. Job, we've all read the book of Job. The man probably who suffered more than any other normal person in the scriptures. Um, everything was wiped out in a day, everything that he had. His, his wife, his children, his estate, everything that he owned. Um, Job never understood, he never knew the reason why he was suffering. He never knew it. And you can look at that story and you can say, well, that was tragic. Absolutely nothing came from that story. Really? Because I guarantee you today, the name Job will probably be said about five million times. Billions of people over history have talked about, thought about, pondered, and written about Job. Job never experienced what good came of it. We do. We're talking about him right now. All right? Church history, we all know, hopefully, about Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, church planner during, uh, during the Nazi regime. Um, ended up being uh, captured by the Nazis and hung by a piano wire. He never saw the good that came from his suffering, but we do. He never questioned the will of God, even though he was suffering and didn't see a reason behind it. Um, yet his impact on missions, on churches, on theological work, and so much more is profound, and it changes the way that church is done today. Have you ever thought about and tried to come to grips with the idea that you may never, ever know why you are going through what you are going through? As long as you are alive, you may never know why you are suffering. Try to come to grips with that for a second. What if you embraced it? What if you embraced the idea that if God knows what he, if God knew what he was doing for thousands and thousands of generations, through humanity, if he was able to bring about the salvation of mankind in the middle of this tragic story, if God knew what he was doing that whole time, that it's possible that God knows what he's doing in your life. It's possible that he knows what he's doing, and it's possible that you may never know. Most likely, you won't know why you are suffering. We actually do know what Job would never know. Do you remember, the, um, do you remember how the book of Job starts? Um, uh, God says, Look at Job. Look how much he loves me. Look how much Job loves me. And what did Satan say? He walks up and he says, um, he doesn't really love you. He says, what do you mean he doesn't love me? No, he, 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 loves, he loves you because he's rich, because his wife is beautiful, because his children are many, uh, because he, he's just, that is why he loves you. There's really no other reason. That is the reason that he loves you. So Satan really um, he says he doesn't love you. It's the things that he gets from you that he loves. So he loves the things that you make. So Satan, in this argument, he says something very, very profound about the human race that is incredibly true. That our love, more often than not, is based upon works, on gifts, on perks, on, on selfish things. Have you ever, and, and so think about your life, maybe, maybe this year, maybe this week. Have you ever been networked? Has anyone ever talked to you for a long time, picked your brain, and become your friend 
only later to find out that, that they, all they wanted was some connection to something else. You were networked. Only later did you find out they didn't really want to be my friend. That's all they wanted was to be networked, to get a job or a connection or get in a band or, or do this or that, whatever. That's all they wanted. Have you ever been pursued because of some tangible thing? Maybe you're pretty well off. Maybe you have resources that someone else doesn't, and people are always trying to be your best little buddy. All right? Um, women, have you ever been dumped or ignored by a guy because you wouldn't sleep with him? Oftentimes, a lot of times, human beings love not because they love, they, they, they love because they love themselves and they're trying to get something for themselves. All right? And this is what Job is accused of, and this is what oftentimes Satan is accusing you of. And this is what Paul is telling us, this sort of that we need to watch out for. I think the reason why the intersection of God and suffering is a difficult one is because we assume that love, the love of God, is, 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 is based upon the same human definitions of love that we have. And, and the truth is, we don't love like God loves. We, we love because of what we can get from people. When we talk about, why do you love them? Why do you love me? Why do you love this or that? Well, because they're smart, they're funny, and they're beautiful. They make me laugh. Me, 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 me. It has nothing to do with them. It's all about me. You're ordering a pizza. You're not asking for a wife. And, and this is how we love people. We don't love them for what we can do for them because we can meet their needs and fulfill them. That's how God loves us. God doesn't love you because there's anything you can do for him. He doesn't think you're any cuter than anyone else, all right? You're absolutely normal, and he loves you. And oftentimes, this is how we look at the love of God. We receive something that is bad, that is negative, that we never expected to receive, and we challenge God, his will, maybe his existence. We assume that somehow God loves like we do, and as long as he's getting what he wants from us, we're being good and moral, we will get what we want from him. And, and you're baffled because I didn't receive what I should have received. It should not be like this. I have been obedient to God. And if that is the way you're thinking, then Satan was right. You loved God because things were going really well for you. So who do you actually love? You love yourself. That's what you love. You love yourself. And maybe the only way to learn about your love for God is to suffer. Because you never would have actually known that you don't actually love God as much as you thought you did. Or maybe you'll learn what Job learned when he lost everything and said, naked, from, naked I was when I came and naked I'll leave. It rains on the, on the just and the unjust. Praise be the name of the Lord. Job actually did love God and maybe Job didn't know it or understand that until he suffered. That is a profound thing to learn about yourself that you actually genuinely love God. And I'm sure maybe sometimes we all wonder how much we actually love God. Satan is very, very cynical about love and our love for God. See, God has created free lovers. God created free lovers. People who love him because love is right and good and not because they will receive any gifts from him. God himself is a free lover. You were made in God's image. You are capable of loving somebody with wanting nothing in return. And God wants you to be a free lover because you were made in his image. And that's a big deal. It is possible to love people, not because they respond in a certain way, um, but simply because you can love them. God doesn't just want you to be a free lover to him. He wants you to be a free lover to everyone. 
And this is what is actually capable of changing the world. It's absolutely crucial to understand the theology of grace when you're suffering. You put it on like glasses and you you look out of the lens of grace. And you contemplate the things that I had. They were all a gift from God. Suffering is always based on losing something that you love. But if you really love God, that is the deepest thing that you can never lose. In the end, you're going to lose everything except God. The day you die is the day you lose everything. And until you die, little pieces here and there will be pulled right out of your life. And each time, you will need to respond in a certain way. Think of it this way. Do you know why it's so important for us to constantly be taking communion? Do you know why? Do you know why we take communion all the time? Because in the midst of everything that we go through, joy, suffering, love, fighting, building, and tearing down, we need to see the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ. This is what we need to see, and this is it. The broken body and the spilled blood of Christ. In all of our situations, it's the lens through which we should, as Christians, look at life. Broken body, spilled blood is what we should see. Are things, and here's what this means. Are things going really, really good for you right now? Are you on a roll? Is your life just on an upshoot? It's going really great. You've got, you've got options and, 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 and you're happy and you found that person you want to spend the rest of your life with and things are just going really, really well. Jesus was perfect and he was good. And his body was broken and his blood was spilled for you. He is the one that you should be praising. He was better than you. He was more perfect. He, he, he was more holy than you. And he is the one you should be remembering in your good times. Are things going really, really bad for you? Are you suffering? Jesus, the sufferer, who knows what you're going through. His body was broken and his blood was spilled. Right there, he sits with you as your comforter and he understands suffering and pain and fear and death. The broken body, the spilled blood. Does your relationship, do you have a relationship that needs healing of some kind? Anyone? That someone that you need to mend with? Jesus, the healer, his body broken and his blood spilled so that you could find healing. Do you feel insignificant? Do you feel unloved? Do you feel unimportant, unnecessary? Do you feel like you could drop off the planet and nobody would even notice that you were gone? Jesus, his blood was spilled and his body was broken for you personally. The God of the universe has noticed you and his body was broken and his blood was spilled for you. When you come into contact with someone you, whom you vehemently disagree with, they live a lifestyle that you can't stand and, and you, so, you struggle with feelings of hate towards them and, and the, they're the outcast, they're the rebellious, the vile, the pagan. Jesus, for them, his body was broken and his blood was spilled, not just for you. So come on down from that mountain and sit with them and offer them a little bit of comfort. We're gonna take some time and take communion here. This is what we do every single week. This is the only thing that can enter into every single situation. And no matter what is going on in your life, you can stand there and you can say, remember, broken body spilled blood. And, and this is the lens that we look at the world through. In all of our sufferings and all the bad things, no matter what is going on, the lens of Christianity, it must be worn. So um, we're going to have, uh, I believe, four communion stations, two here on the sides and one in the front, one in the back. Uh, we ask that you take some time, talk to God, maybe repent of some things that, that, that you need to repent of and uh, ask God to reveal things in your life, ways that you have failed and, and, uh, 
and um, first off, ask for forgiveness and then praise him because he offers it. If there's something you need to confess to someone else, feel free to, uh, to pull them aside and talk to them. And if you need to make a relationship right with someone before you take communion, go talk to them and make it right. Uh, we're going to have elders on either side here. If you need someone to pray with, um, to, talk to, about, uh, to, 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 to talk to about whatever you're going through, come on up and talk to them, and uh, they will pray with you. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I'd like to confess something to you, and they confess some sin to you, and you're, and you're a follower of Christ, you're a priest of God, you look at them and you say, as a priest of God, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus. That is one of the jobs that you have. It is one of the responsibilities that we bear as the body of Christ. All right? So why don't we take some time? Why don't we pray? And um, let's uh, prepare our hearts and minds and then take some time taking communion. Father, we love you. You're a good God. You're a holy God. Uh, we ask that you would, in all of our sufferings and all of our trials, remind us that you are here, that you are sitting next to us, that you know what suffering is like because you are a God who's suffered. You know what it is like to, to suffer loss. You have suffered loss. And only you have the words that can be said, that can bring us out of what we're going through. You can give us hope for the next moment, hope for the next day, the next hour, the next year. And in the end, hope in another life. A life of the resurrection. That is, that is exciting. That is the hope that we have, God. We love you. Be with us now as we take communion. Convict us and change us. And uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to God.